Dick lawyer. Because you get dick lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> it's my last time with dick lawyer. <laughs> it's so sad. It's Friday, November the 17th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Darroch, Dutch News Contributing Editor and Lunchbox Collaborator, and with me today is my fellow Dutch News Contributing Editor and Moonlight Dog Whisperer, Molly Quell. Later in the programme, we'll be joined by Paul Peters, Master's Student in Civil Engineering and Part-Time Podcaster. Why are you a Lunchbox Collaborator? My youngest son this week said that he wanted to have uh, peanut butter and hagelslag oh, in his right. sandwiches, yeah. yes, and uh, I, I complied, so, so that's it. So you were it. contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Uh, yeah, there's no going back from this position, basically. I think my, my, my children are now fully integrated. They've got Hagelslag in their veins and in their immune system. Yeah, it's too late. We, They're we, contaminated. We can never, yeah, we can never return. They're contaminated. Where is Paul today? Paul's uh, having lectures. Paul apparently is right? having a lecture, yeah. Or he's going to a lecture which is actually being recorded, or he's watching a lecture on a recording or something like that. I have no idea. We also have... We're <laughs> being visited by a dog. <laughs> what we do have... Is a dog. Is a dog. <laughs> he's on my lap. Now. Hello. Simcoe has just, just wandered her way into the recording studio and yeah. is now ruining everything. And was trying to kiss me on the lips as well. Okay, but, come uh, here. Do you want to come over here? Do you want to come here? I've already made more of a contribution than Paul. That's true. She podcast, has made yeah. more. Of, yeah. She's definitely cuter than Paul is. <laughs> so I'm, I am, uh, if our listeners couldn't tell, uh, <laughs> dog sitting this week. Yeah. Uh, for an eight-month-old yellow lab puppy who is the biggest pain in the ass. Who is somewhat unpredictable. She's very unpredictable. <laughs> and she does not like to be left alone, so she's yes. refusing to go and do anything else while we record this podcast. And she's now just trying to bite Molly's hand. So, uh, <laughs> well, some who point. isn't? She's just trying to bite the hand that feeds her, aren't you? Indeed. Go? So, um, we're both kind of um, uh, appropriately dressed, I think, for the podcast uh, this week without giving too much away to the listeners, unlike certain students at uh, the Oh, is this about the calendar guy? <laughs> yes. So there was a PhD student at the TU, at TU Delft <laughs> who is a priest in the Pastafarian religion. Yes. And he petitions the university to allow him to defend his, his PhD his thesis, PhD right? thesis yeah. in his priestly regalia, <laughs> which for the Pastafarian religion is a pirate costume with a colander on your head. Mm. And the TU has denied him this and so he is now suing the university under some sort of human <laughs> rights convention right no he's, he's probably going to take it to, to Strasbourg I think by yeah, the sound of it yeah it's uh, he said he claims that it violates his it uh, violates his religion as a freedom of religion or expression of religion because he, he has this uh, colander on his head in his passport photograph right that is correct which yeah. I think is especially impressive because he's uh, he's an Israeli national so he yeah. managed to get the Israeli government to to, uh, to accept the fact that he should have a colander on his head as a mark of his religion the world is an being interesting a, place a member of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. Exactly, the Church yeah. of the Flying Spaghetti yeah. Monster. So, yeah, that was good. But we have a, there's a lot of good, like, weird news this week. We have a whole Ulpef segment later. Where we have, talk yeah. About, we'll uh, be coming gummy to bears later. and flags yeah. and all sorts of fun Various things. types of gate. Yes, all sorts yeah. of gates. Indeed. In this week's news, dividend tax has become the new government's first hot potato. There are some fishy dealings in the world of new herring. We salute the most successful Dutch football manager of all time. It's probably not who you think. And find out why the Dutch underworld is deep in the brown stuff. In our discussion, we'll lift the lid on the fraudsters and purveyors of fake news infiltrating the MH17 crash investigation. To update you on our discussion about the dividend tax, basically nothing has changed and now Belgium is mad at us. Prime Minister Mark Rutte told Parliament during a debate on Wednesday that, quote, if everything is made public, you won't be able to run the country, referring to his refusal to release documents regarding companies which have been pressuring the government to abolish the tax on shareholder profits. 
The government's own macroeconomic think tank and the country's leading economists question if the move to scrap the tax will encourage multinational companies to move to the Netherlands in the wake of Brexit, as Ritza claims. In his weekly address on the NOS, Ritza said that if the Netherlands kept the tax, the country could turn into Belgium, meaning it would immediately develop potholes in its roads, start speaking with a funny accent, and cease to have any multinational companies left. The Belgian government called Ritza ill-informed. And he's had to phone the Belgian government since to apologise. Yes, he said that he uh, he apologised for the the phrasing of his wording (laughs) and that he he misspoke. He basically alleged that uh, all multinational companies, except for one, had fled Belgium because of its uh, dividend tax, when that turned out to be utterly untrue. utterly untrue. So they've had another debate in Parliament this week and uh, nobody's moved at all on it, right? No, there's been no real change in terms of what people think. Uh, The Vivide is still pretty pro getting rid of the dividend belasting. Yes, a claver claims that uh, the Netherlands was being held hostage by multinational companies. So pretty much kind of what you would uh, expect. And, and Rutte, I think, has underlined that uh, his argument is that uh, a couple of big companies, particularly Unilever, are going to be deciding in the next uh, month or so whether or not they base themselves in either the Netherlands or the UK, because at the moment they're based in both. His, his fear is that they'll jump ship unless they're given some kind of a big tax sweetener to, to keep them here. Yeah, there's been some court cases, actually, about this. News or reported this week that several international companies have taken the Netherlands to court over the tax. They claim it's unfair because Dutch companies can offset the tax against earnings while foreign companies can't. They argue that this violates a European Union regulation which states that countries may not treat domestic companies more favorably than international ones. But yeah, it's sort of the usual suspects as we discussed last week. Mm. Shell, Unilever, Philips, they're all kind yeah. of in this mix of, of wanting the, the Dutch government to, to do away with the dividend tax. Yeah, and they've been lobbying for about 10 years, it seems, to have scrapped this tax. It was reduced to 15% about 10 years ago, and um, but they wanted it scrapped altogether. And it seems that Brexit has been their opportunity to get their way. Right, and so Rutte has argued that if we get rid of the dividend blasting, that it will yeah. be better for multinational companies moving here in the wake of Brexit. Yeah. Though economics research does doesn't really seem to indicate that that is true. So it's a bit of a discussion. This week, a Labour MP started a crowdfunding campaign for a delivery courier who's fighting for his right to protection from dismissal. Around 1,750 riders from the bicycle-based food service have been told they'll have to go freelance from February or lose their jobs. The 19-year-old student is trying to bring a test case against the company, arguing that he is effectively an employee and the company shouldn't dismiss him without due cause. But he can't afford the legal fees, so Gijs van Dijk, from the PvdA, has stepped in and started a crowdfunding page to raise €7,500. And he says the party will make up any funding gap. What will it mean for uh, riders if they're self-employed, Gordon? Well, Deliveroo says it's responding to the couriers' wish to be more flexible. A lot of their couriers are students and uh, they want to work flexible hours to fit around their constantly changing teaching schedules. Deliveroo also says they'll be able to take home more of their earnings because they're self-employed. That is strictly true, although they're then not entitled to holiday pay or sick pay, they don't get any pension contributions, and they're not insured against incapacity, or they have to sort sort that out for themselves. And Van Dyke's pointed out that if they have an accident on the bike, then there's no safety net for them. So in his words, it's not surprising that the couriers are taking a stand. Yeah, I think that this just goes to uh, more issues that are like this, right? Uber drivers and these sorts yeah. of things where the question is whether or not they can be uh, treated as fr- as freelance employees. The student was quoted as saying that he's, uh, he's a student, not a small company, and he yeah. wishes to be treated as an employee, not a, not a freelancer. Indeed, yeah. And obviously if you're a freelancer, you have to do your own paperwork, get your accounts in. It's a lot more complicated. And if you're, you don't really want that. If you're a student, you just want to earn a bit of pin money. In health news, it turns out pretty much every horror story you've ever heard at an expat meetup group about doctors in the Netherlands is correct. 
It was reported this week that Dutch doctors do actually prescribe fewer antibiotics than any other OECD country. A survey conducted by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development of all of its 35 member countries found that in the Netherlands, only 10.7 people out of 1,000 are prescribed antibiotics at any given time. The OECD average is 20.6. And did the report say why this is the case? It does not. The Dutch do spend less overall on medication, uh, 360 euros per year, compared to the EU average of 400 but with drugs like cholesterol blockers and stuff, the Dutch doctors actually prescribe more. Mm, presumably because they eat all that cheese. And, uh, yeah, Must yeah. be. But not prescribing antibiotics isn't necessarily a bad thing, right? Because we keep getting warnings about antibiotic resistance if they're overprescribed. Yeah, there was a lot of discussion this week about this, and it seems to be that the Dutch medical community advocates saying that this is actually a good sign, that it's not that Dutch doctors don't prescribe enough antibiotics, mm. but that other places are overprescribing antibiotics. The number of foreign students attending Dutch universities has doubled in 10 years. According to a report by the Nufik Group, some 80,000 non-Dutch nationals enrolled for the 2016-17 academic year. And around a quarter of foreign students who study here opt to stay, mostly in the major cities of Amsterdam, Rotterdam and Utrecht and The Hague. Half of all students in Maastricht are foreign nationals, compared to 20% in Delft, Wageningen and The Hague, and only 10% in Amsterdam. So where do all these uh, international students come from, Gordon? Well, not surprisingly, the biggest number come from over the border in Germany. More than a quarter of the total are German students. They tend to study nearer the border, which is why Maastricht's numbers are very high. Also Nijmegen and Inschede and Groningen. But there's also been a sharp rise in British students. There's now four times as many as in 2011. That's mainly because tuition fees for UK domestic universities have gone up sharply in that time. And it could be that Brexit may have a further effect on the numbers. So did we anticipate that Brexit will have a positive or a negative effect on the number of British students here in the Netherlands? Well, it's hard to tell. It's, it's all tied up with uh, things like uh, visa regulations. You know, will there be visa regulations for British students uh, after Brexit because they're not uni nationals anymore? Will there be a surge of um, British students trying to get into Dutch universities before Brexit? That could be another thing. I would imagine if you're a student in the UK and you've got ambitions to work in the European Union after you graduate, you're possibly going to look towards universities in the EU rather than uh, studying the UK because it uh, that'll make it easier for you to find work uh, in Europe afterwards. So Brexit continues to screw up everyone's life. Exactly, yeah. So Gordon, there was a lot of uphef this week. We had, Your favourite word. I know. We had gummy bear gate, we had flag gate, <laughs> we had herring gate. Twitter was awash with terrible jokes and weird parliamentary flag photoshops. Let's start with my favorite story of the week. Public transportation company UOVE attempted to do a good deed in Utrecht by handing out gummy bears to its passengers. That backfired when people complained that the candy wasn't vegan, vegetarian, halal, kosher, and contained palm oil, which is harvested in ways that are damaging to the environment. Also, people were complaining that it, they came in individually wrapped uh, plastic bags, which are also bad for the environment. So pretty much uh, hit every trigger possible. Pretty much. Everyone was mad. <laughs> then, Ein van Dach reported that the Odd Day's annual herring assessment was not to be trusted. Now, this is devastating. This for, is devastating for, for the Dutch. For the, Dutch. Yeah. the paper rates the quality of the terrible and disgusting fish, which the Dutch continue to insist as a food and not a <laughs> method of torture every year. But an economist conducted a study on the rankings and found that one panelist has connections to the fishing industry and companies which get their supplies connected to him score higher. Mm. And finally, if you've seen weird flags on your Twitter feed this week, it's probably because there's a new Dutch flag in the Toyota Kammer. After a motion by SKP leader Kees van der Stey, which was co-sponsored by Geert Wilders of the PVV, a Dutch flag on a wooden stand was added to the hall. In true Dutch fashion, it only costs 100 euros. 
It may have not been the most aesthetically pleasing production of the country's flag, leading many on the internet to Photoshop it as a flag in a cube of cheese or in a bitter ball. We will, of course, include those photos in the liner notes. So the flag cost 100 euros, but I mean, I went out and got a flag a couple of years ago and I think got the flag and the pole for less than 20. So they've been ripped off, surely. I think so. The flag is like particularly, like it's made of a particularly like shiny material. (laughs) It really honestly does look like one of those cheap toothpick flags (laughs) that they put in a cube of cheese, which of course is what the internet promptly photoshopped this into. But I mean, didn't the king have a spare one lying around a palace somewhere? I mean, you would think that like the SKP guy probably has just a couple in his garage, but apparently not. Everyone in the Netherlands has a flag. It's the first thing you learn when when you're over here in May or April and uh, absolutely everyone seems to have magically produce a flag from a bottom drawer somewhere and hang it outside their house. I have a confession, Gordon. You've got a flag. We don't have you a flag. You don't have a flag. We don't have a flag. Unlike you, I'm not subjecting anyone to hug a flag <laughs> and peanut butter. I'm not that integrated. Did anyone oppose the flag? Only the Partei van de Dira. They were the only ones that uh, voted against uh, the motion to put the flag into okay. the Twitter Commer. I presume that's because the flag was not vegan. Or because it came in an individual plastic wrapper. Right. Also mm. that. Dick Advocaat is the most successful Dutch national football coach of all time. How did this happen? I don't understand. I thought the only thing that I knew about Dutch sports is that the men's football team was terrible and it was all Dick Lawyer's fault. Well, that's what everybody thought, but uh, apparently, you know, the statistics don't lie. After Tuesday night's 3-0 friendly win in Romania, that was his 37th win on the job. Uh, he's been in charge for three spells in total, and it beats the record that's been held since before the war by Bob Glendening, who isn't Dutch, as you might uh, guess, who's an English coach who they brought in when the Dutch still basically had a Namita team. And at the age of 70, Avocat said he was bowing out because it was, quote, time for a new generation. So uh, the dick done good. The dick done good. Yeah. This is my last time to be able to make dick lawyer jokes. Indeed. It? So sad. And there's also a good news for motor racing fans, right? Uh, potentially, because there's been a new report saying that uh, Formula One racing in principle could return to Zandvoort. Uh, there hasn't been a Dutch Grand Prix since 1985. But two years ago, the town council voted to try to get the race back on. So they commissioned a research bureau who said that um, although some improvements were needed, particularly for accessibility, because the venue's out in the dunes, there were no major obstacles. However, sports minister Bruno Browns then put a dampener on the plan when he stood up in Parliament this week and said there were still too many uncertainties. But if his scepticism can be overcome, Max Verstappen could soon be driving in a home Grand Prix, even though he's really Belgian. Max Verstappen is Belgian? He's a Dutch But he's Belgian like a Dutch national. national treasure. He is, I know. His dad was also a Grand Prix driver, although a less successful one, uh, is Dutch. Um, so that's why the Dutch claim him. And uh, I heard a report this week that other people are maybe not so happy with their sports uh, uh, situations because they keep injuring themselves. Yeah, it's not always um, uh, good for your health, apparently, because 121,000 people ended up in hospital last year with a sporting injury. Uh, this is a report by Safety Body Veiligheid NL. They said 35,000 people hurt themselves playing football. 11,000 schoolchildren suffered serious injuries during gym lessons. So gym seems to have got a bit more extreme uh, since I was at school. Apparently. <laughs> Under-18s accounted for half of all sports-related visits to hospital, but the overall number was down because people are more likely to go to their doctor first rather than head straight to the accident wing. Because it's uh, less expensive. Probably. Here's a phrase I never thought I'd have to say. There's a manure mob operating in the Netherlands. According to an investigation published in the NRC at the weekend, dozens of livestock farmers in Oost-Brabant and Nord-Limburg are breaking the rules regarding the disposal of surplus manure. Farmers are doing all sorts of dirty tricks, everything from illegally trading manure to forging manure accounts, both of which are apparently things. The situation is really crappy. 
35 of the country's 56 manure processing facilities have been fined for fraud. Farmers are governed by strict regulations regarding manure, which are not just for shits and giggles, since manure can pollute groundwater. Wilfried Nielsen, a manure transporter from Zeus Vlandren, said at a meeting which was attended by NRC journalists, quote, Gentlemen, we are all committing fraud. Man, you're making some awful puns today. I had to read that out. That wasn't my joke. Manure, you're making some awful puns today, Gordon. I'm just trying to make up for Paul not being here. I'm, we need to put an advisory on this podcast. This, yeah. there, there, there are some really stinking puns <laughs> this week. We're really scraping the bottom of the barrel. Yeah. Here in Holland is a new podcast for internationals living in the Netherlands. It is a twice-weekly podcast which focuses on the stories of internationals and expats. The podcast covers topics from manners to chance encounters, and they interview the Dutch and non-Dutch alike to get their insights, advice and stories, ranging from the funny to the sad. Here in Holland is currently creating an entirely crowdsourced podcast and welcomes your submissions. You can send your stories via WhatsApp. Find more information on their website, www.hereinholland.com. The podcast is available in iTunes and other podcasting apps. If you're interested in reaching an international audience with your product or service, you can email to podcast at dutchnews.nl for our competitive advertising rates. This week, Christian Democrat MP Peter Omzicht stepped down as his party's spokesman on the MH17 inquiry. After it emerged, he'd helped a fake witness draft a question at a gathering attended by relatives. It was a painful setback for Omzicht, but also brought to light the sophisticated tactics being used to cast doubt on the official investigation. The investigation is being carried out by the Dutch Safety Board, a joint investigation team and the Public Prosecution Service. NSA reported at the weekend that families have frequently been approached, both online and in person at meetings, by people putting forward alternative explanations based on flimsy evidence or sometimes none at all. So who's behind the misinformation campaign and what motivates them? So, uh, Gordon, what exactly did uh, did Omzicht do? So Peter Omzicht is a quite has got quite a reputation as an independent-minded MP, quite a tenacious investigator on various fronts. And one of the things that he's um, been um, interested in is the MH17 inquiry. But in May, he was at a meeting uh, that was run by the FEU University in Amsterdam, which was looking at uh, the whole question of um, whether the uh, perpetrators of the MH17 um, shoot the people who shot the plane down could be brought to justice. Um, and then while he was there, he was before the meeting rather. He was introduced uh, to a man who's uh, called who was called Alexander, who was from Ukraine, and he said he'd witnessed the crash. So he sat down with Omsicht and um, the, the guy who introduced him, who was who, who was a blogger, um, who's called who's a sort of amateur detective in the MH17 inquiry. And he sat down, and had a chat, and the the the, the, the farmer said that, that he'd witnessed the uh, plane being shot down. He'd seen other planes in the sky at the time, and he also said that he'd been interviewed by the joint investigation team, but they hadn't um, recognised him as a witness and what should he do? And uh, Omsik said well you can ask a question from the floor but uh, you're going to have to keep it very short because you only get one minute speaking time. And then what he did where he really messed up was that uh, he then sort of scripted a question for him to ask from the audience which then did at the end of the at the end of the session and Omsik uh, who was on the panel said uh, well you should bring your concerns to the joint investigation team. Which is slightly odd because he'd already been uh, interviewed by them. And then when this came to light it became clear that actually the, the farmer wasn't a witness. He hadn't, although he lived in the area he hadn't actually been at home at the time uh, he'd based his testimony on what his wife saw um, he'd also said things like for example there were other planes in the sky which kind of tallies with the alternative theories that been put forward that uh, perhaps MH17 was shot down by a fighter jet basically he was a fake witness and uh, when that emerged uh, 
uh, Omzicht uh, obviously was, uh, came in for a lot of criticism and he eventually this week had to step down as a spokesman on MH17. So this this fake witness, Alexander, is, yeah. it, is it thought that he is like a, a person who's maybe slightly mentally unstable or like an attention seeker? Or is this some sort of fake Russian news trolling thing? Because that's also quite been in the news a lot lately. There has been a lot of that in the news. And, uh, and exactly what his relationship with, is with all that uh, isn't, isn't quite clear. But well, it is a fact that Alexander is living in Ukraine and in the area where the plane crashed down. Um, uh, but what his actual motives are, is unclear. He's in the Netherlands as a refugee, as well from Ukraine. Yeah. He? and he was uh, he was interviewed in Germany when he was a ref- when he was seeking asylum in Germany as well. And that was the point when the joint investigation team spoke to him first of all. Um, but they worked out very quickly that his testimony wasn't reliable because he wasn't actually an eyewitness, and yeah. that's why they discounted him. And the odd thing, obviously, is that um, Omzicht uh, apparently uh, was told this during the interview before the meeting, and yet uh, during the meeting he sort of said that you know th- th- this should be raised with the joint investigation team, which you know, that, that was a mistake, clearly, and uh, it angered the families. Um, his party leader, Sibon Buma, um, said quite clearly that it was a blunder, um, and, and that's why he's uh, he's had to step back from, from the inquiry. Yeah, because the, 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 the question and the answer by uh, Omtzigt cast a doubt on the official... Uh, conclusions of the uh, uh, joint investigation team, and when you do that in a in a, in a in a hall or a lecture hall where all these relatives of, of of victims are, you know that's a very unacceptable thing to do to cast doubt on the official uh, conclusion. And um, you know it, it happened a lot to to all these uh, relatives of the victims that people uh, approach them and they say, well, we have some new news for you we have some new evidence and it turns out that every time someone uh, keeps talking uh, mm. they uh, uh, this evidence seems to point at the direction of brain and mm. ukrainian f- uh, fighting jets that somehow shut down uh, mh17 and there is even a, a woman who, who who left the netherlands and she moved to new york because she just got tired of all these people approaching her with this new evidence that pointed in the direction of uh, of Ukra- the Ukrainian army. Yeah, certainly all the evidence uh, that people have come out with, the so-called evidence, points certainly away from Russian responsibility, which is what the direction that the official investigation is heading in, that, uh, that the plane was brought down by a book missile that was fired from um, territory that's held by Russian-backed separatists. So it seems to be it's a concerted effort to steer blame away or deflect blame from, from Russia. Yes, and Peter Omtzigt, he's a CDA MP, um, CDA is in the coalition. The coalition has only a one-seat majority. Um, so this was also for the new coalition uh, a pain in the head. Yeah. A pain in the head? A pain in the ass. Yeah. A pain in the ass. Yeah. Can you say that? <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is a family-friendly podcast, Paul. But this isn't the only... Um, uh, report of some sort of person who seems to have strange motives, right, coming out as approaching, because there was also this translator woman, right? So what what was the deal with that? Yeah, she was a woman who uh, I think approached families at a meeting at the Dutch Parliament a couple of months ago. Uh, she um, she introduced herself as uh, Julia, and she said she'd worked as an interpreter in Kiev, and she'd uh, she'd overheard or she or she'd heard the Dutch ambassador. Um, talking about um, the Ukrainians in 
or um, in, in, in Ukraine having surface-to-air missiles, and therefore the implication was that they knew about it before the plane came down and should have taken action. Um, she also said claimed that she'd uh, had a conversation with John Kerry, the, you know, the, the American um, Secretary of State, Foreign Minister at the at the time. All this turned out to be to be lies. Basically, she hadn't, she just um, gathered up some information that was in the public domain, presented it to the families. But she kind of obviously with the, she'd gone to them with the clear implication that there were things being covered up and that. Uh, you know, that, that it was the Ukrainians who who were behind it all and information was being withheld from the inquiry. And this isn't... So there was also this story this week about uh, sort of Russian meddling in, in uh, European elections and Netherlands elections, right? There was a... Well, it was in the Brexit vote. You know, yeah. And, and, and that hasn't been direct connection, I don't think, with the Dutch elections. Right, it was, uh, yeah, was, it was Brexit, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was in, in the Brexit vote, certainly, I think, uh, that they some research was done by, I think, um, Edinburgh and Swansea universities, and they found out that, um, about 400, more than 400 fake Twitter accounts have been used to, you know, spread um, propaganda about the, you know, just before the Brexit vote. All these accounts were shut down straight after the vote as well. Yeah. But, um, for example, I mean, that one of these accounts who gave himself the name of something like Proud Texan or something like that, he's, uh, yeah, um, who, although being a proud Texan and a kind of US nationalist, oddly was uh, very interested in Brexit and what's going on in UK domestic politics. Yeah, well, meanwhile, they've also discovered, right, so there was these... There were meetings in front of Congress with leaders from from a bunch of these tech companies, Facebook, Google, Twitter, um, last week about these, in the US. yeah, in the U.S. about these exact things because it turns out that there was a lot of sort of fake bot accounts put together that had come out of like Russia, um, basically like being pro pro Trump and also like stirring up a lot of like trying to incite a lot of, uh, of incidents. So it's a real concern, like a lot of this sort of not just fake, you know, some of this is like sort of fake news kind mm-hmm. of quote unquote, but also these, you know, these witnesses that are harassing, ha- uh, harassing the family, the family members of victims and this sort of thing. I mean, it seems like a real yeah, operation. Almost. Yeah, it's a more sophisticated campaign. Yeah. I think we really, maybe we thought it was. You know, we've tended to think up till now that it's basically basically something that happens online and that people are setting up fake accounts. Or there's, uh, I think, an agency based in St. Petersburg where people seem to sit all day in a basement, literally tweeting, pretending to be, you know, American or um, uh, British uh, um, yeah, political political activists. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, but it does, it, and it and it kind of distorts debate and it sows division. And often it's more, I think. It seems to be more actually just the sowing division is more the aim rather than backing one particular side in the debate. I mean, what, what, what one f- example that uh, you know, was, was cited a lot this week was there was a f- photograph of um, um, a, a terrorist attack in London um, back in about a couple of months before the Brexit vote. Oh, was this with the woman yeah, this in the, the, the hijab? Woman in yeah. a headscarf who was, who, was, who was apparently walking past and on her phone and completely oblivious and just walking past somebody who was being seriously injured and treated on the ground. And that caused a huge amount of outrage and uproar. And that turned out to have been tweeted from one of these fake Russian accounts. And it's a very manipulative thing because when you look at the original picture that was taken, the woman is sort of looking out and she's got quite a sort of distressed look on her face. And in the doctored picture, the, the, her eyes are looking down. So they've actually photoshopped her eyes so you can't see her expression yeah. anymore. She just looks like she's looking at her phone and she doesn't care yeah. about the person being injured on the ground. Yeah, and both her and the <laughs> photographer came out with a statement <laughs> saying that, like, you know, she had... She had initially stopped to help this person on the sidewalk mm. but there was a bunch of people there and like what she really wanted to do was call her mom and tell her mom that she was okay yeah. and the photographer had taken this whole series of photos and like also said that 
no, no, she was just, you know, behaving as the way anyone would at sort of a, an event like this, that yeah. she wasn't being kind of blasé about it. What is what is Ruta having to say about this uh, this this dust up? Uh, yeah, well, Omzik um, has been a bit of a thorn in Ruta's side, obviously, because Ruta is, you know, as prime minister, he's uh, had a key role in organizing, steering the investigation, and Omzik has been coming with a lot of Omzik's kind of uh, approach hasn't always gone down well because he tends to come with a whole flood of uh, inquir- uh, flood of queries and sort of and, and, and say, you know, is there information on this? Is there a and if not, why not? Is something being covered up? So he has a kind of scattergun approach. He's kind of known for that. And, and Rutter, at one point, I think in Parliament, stood up and said, "Look, do you want to carry on scoring points on this, or do you actually want to help us catch the bad guys?" Kind of thing. Which is a bit of a Rutter sort of way of dismissing. Like it's very Omsicht is all about get, gets very deeply involved in in the procedure. And Rutter is kind of a results guy, really. So he doesn't like being held up by doesn't appreciate being held up by people who want to be you know um, who, who are diligent and thorough like Omsicht is. So that, that's partly why Rutter was upset. But also, I think because you know, some you know, not all of the queries Omsicht uh, brought were you know were necessarily um, relevant to, to the discussion. Is the perception that he's like some sort of I don't know Russian shill or like has been taken in by conspiracy theories? Like, does he seem to be advocating for a position that's like against the official party line? No, I don't think so. He's he's kind of known as uh, what was the phrase NSA uses a berupst wasliche, wasn't he? So like, like a like yeah. professional thorn in the side. Yeah. Yeah. He's just a guy who just like he's just a guy you don't <laughs> want to invite to your dinner yeah, party. Yeah, he, he's like a dog yeah. with a bone. If he gets his teeth into something. Yeah. He won't let go until you know, and so I don't think there's any sort of suggestion that he's kind of in the pay of uh, Russia or he's got any bad intentions. And I think even the families, although they're upset with him, once he apologized and he accepted he made a mistake, by and large, they they accepted that. Yeah. I, th- I think his motives are generally, yeah, because he has be been good. fighting for them for the past what is it, yeah. three years three now, years and now. they really appreciate that. And of course, one can make a mistake, uh, you know, one time that uh, yeah. they, they forgave him, but um. Uh, you know, it's such a sensitive subject, and when you make a mistake in this dossier, then yeah, yeah, it might be unforgivable. You're playing with fire. You're playing with fire, basically. Yeah. yeah. So, was yeah. there any calls for him to to step down? Well, I think initially at the weekend when it first broke, uh, there were people saying that he should resign as an MP, but I think that's passed over now. I think. Yeah, he gave uh, he gave uh, uh, an explanation. He yeah. put it on Facebook, quite a lengthy one, and I think everyone accepted his apologies and uh, uh, he stepped down from the MH17 yeah. dossier so he don't, won't get involved with that anymore and I think uh, everyone is happy with that yeah. um, the, the, you know during the weekend after the story broke uh, uh, a, lot, a lot of people uh, called f- for him to resign but there was uh, uh, for example Geen Stel they really were supporting him uh-huh. uh, for some Reason because usually you know uh, only a suggestion is enough for them to uh, to call for someone to resign or to step down and in this case uh, it was completely uh, the other way around they asked for his explanation and for some nuances and uh, you know that was quite a curious thing to see that is kind of an interesting development isn't it because Kane Style of course of um, uh, a very supportive Thierry Baudet and Baudet is another person who's been very taken a very kind of skeptical line should we say on the MH17 investigation so. Yeah, maybe that's uh, a factor. I don't know. Um, yeah, that yeah. might be the case because yeah. uh, Thierry Baudet he called for a, uh, a technocratic uh, cabinet. Uh, you know, he's uh, he's he's yeah. against the uh, the party cartel, as he as yeah. he says it, and he he often used uh, Peter Omzicht as an as a perfect example of someone who should be in the cabinet because of his 
qualities and not because of his uh, party uh, connections. Party allegiance, yeah. yeah, yeah. But Baudet has also, of course, signed a letter to Donald Trump um, calling for a new inquiry into MH17. So, oh, so, did he? So, yeah. Oh. So, or one, one of these amateur investigators uh, put a, circulated a letter around fam- some of the relatives. This is another person who approached them, you know, with with, with alternative accounts and theories and whatever. Um, and he, he wanted Trump to start a new um, uh, inquiry that was separate from the Dutch government or the, or the Dutch authorities, rather, um, and uh, most of the families didn't sign it, but uh, Baudet did. Okay. So, and well. why on earth does the U.S. need to get involved in this? Mm. Okay. <laughs> I have a theory, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But coming back to Omzicht, I mean, I think what this kind of illustrates, I think, is that uh, there's this whole all kinds of layers of you know uh, cranks, conspiracy theorists, but also kind of you know honest investigators like uh, Omzicht and. Someone like him is very attractive to people who want to peddle conspiracy theories or uh, or muddy the waters or sow discord or whatever. And uh, I think that's a danger. It's a classic kind of um, fraudster's tactic that uh, if you've got a... That you, you try and attach your story to someone who's more credible than you are because that gives your account yeah. more credibility. I think that's where Omzik got trapped. Yeah, basically. Omzik is uh, yeah. you know, always very critical to yeah. every official report uh, that's coming out. So yeah. they are using him to justify their conspiracy theories yeah uh, and to be fair to him you know the, the official inquiry hasn't always run smoothly and there were you know um legitimate criticisms of it certainly in the early stages when the government's having all kinds of problems negotiating with the ukrainian rebels on the ground and what kind of business so yes it, and it's this missing radar footage uh, yeah uh, uh, exactly for, for which uh is fighting really hard mm. and uh, uh you know the conspiracy theories uh, the conspiracy theorists, of course, claim that if we have this actual ra- radar footage, then we can cl- we can prove that it wasn't a uh, book missile launcher, but it was a, a Ukrainian uh, a fighter jet. Fighter yeah. jet, yeah. And of course, when it finally was produced, it turned out there weren't any other planes in the sky, which was one of the key planks yeah. of the and conspiracy theories. And after that, theories. the conspiracy yeah. theorists they say moved on to something else. Yeah, yeah, it's doctored footage. Yeah, mm. exactly. Mm. There was there was a second guy. It was an inside job. Yeah, it's a false flag operation. There was someone on the grassy knoll. There was something. On the, grassy <laughs> knoll. the Russians put nukes under the World Trade Center building. Yeah. <laughs> That's all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We'll include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. And if you want to help us, please subscribe to our channel and rate the podcast, which helps new listeners to find us. And please share the podcast with people in your own network. My thanks to Molly Quell and Paul Peters. I'm Gordon Darach, and we'll be back next week. Simcoe? <laughs> the sock? Is that okay? I'm gonna take this. I don't have any more of these fucking chew toy things for you.